What is the most important uh, lesson you learned from reading Murray Rothbard? Really understanding what the government is. And it really revolutionized the way I use language. He was on the highway to a lot of professional prestige, but he went on to do other things that were professionally dangerous, like developing libertarian theory, developing a sustained attack on central banking. Professionally, he suffered a great deal as a result of those decisions, but frankly, we should all thank God that he did it. You are, among many things, you are a, a strong follower of Murray Rothbard. You know, at an event like this, you run into a lot of people, Rothbardians, anti-Rothbardians, etc. How do you take the measure of Murray Rothbard, the renegade Austrian school economist, influence on the contemporary libertarian movement? I think he was basically the most influential. He was really uh, Plato to Ludwig von Mises' Socrates. Ludwig von Mises came from Austria. He was a Jewish refugee from Nazism, and uh, he came to New York in 1949, and he set up a seminar at NYU, and Rothbard, who was then a Columbia graduate student, attended his seminar. And while Mises published splendidly in English, it was really left to Rothbard, who was a gifted writer, to take Mises' ideas and extend them to some degree, make them clearer, and uh, apply them. Howdy, folks. Mr. Manger here. Welcome, welcome, welcome to The Jib Show. Glad to have you. Glad to be in your ear. <laughs> All right, well, today is something of a special episode because I am converting a four-part written series of Nations by Consent, authored by the great Murray Rothbard, into a podcast episode. So the idea is, number one, to uh, take that series condense it without condensing it all that much, and, number two, bringing it up to date a bit in 2023 resolution, the resolution of modern times. I'm not very focused on offering any personal critiques. If I do, just kind of consider it maybe beside the point, who knows? But with that said, why don't we go ahead and get into this? Okay, so after the fall of the Soviet Union, Murray Rothbard observed that while it was useful to embark on an analysis between the individual and the nation-state, another unit of analysis had been widely neglected. That would be the genuine nation. This theme was expounded throughout his 1994 essay, Nations by Consent. So part one is called Reemergent Nations. The essay begins as follows. Libertarians tend to focus on two important units of analysis, the individual and the state. And yet, one of the most dramatic and significant events of our time 
has been the reemergence with a bang in the last five years of a third and much neglected aspect of the real world, the nation. Okay, so as the Soviet Union collapsed, Rothbard uh, witnessed what he called a corollary of the collapse of communism in the Soviet Union and in Eastern Europe, a vivid and startlingly swift decomposition of the centralized state or alleged nation-state into its constituent nationalities. So in other words, the evil empire, as Ronald Reagan famously or infamously called it, uh, consisted of an artificial consolidation that demanded brute force to remain entwined. Even so, these nationalities retained distinct undercurrents and formally recovered their own ways of life. The genuine nation, or nationality, Rothbard continues, has made a dramatic reappearance on the world stage. And for our purposes, how is this genuine nation defined? Well, Rothbard emphatically distinguished the nation from the state, however vexing the question may be. He says, The nation cannot be precisely defined. It is a complex and varying constellation of different forms of communities, languages, ethnic groups, or religions. Some nations or nationalities, such as the Slovenes, are both a separate ethnic group and a language. Others, such as the warring groups in Bosnia, are the same ethnic group whose language is the same, but who differ in the form of alphabet and who clash fiercely on religion. The Eastern Orthodox Serbs, the Catholic Croats, and the Bosnian Muslims, who, to make matters more complicated, were originally champions of the Manichaean Bogomil heresy. Uh, side note, I hope I pronounced most of that correctly, and let it slide if you would be so kind. Anyway, back to Rothbard, he says... The question of nationality is made more complex by the interplay of objectively existing reality and subjective perceptions. Okay, so that takes us somewhere in 2022-2023. The overturning of Roe v. Wade caused many Americans to approach their framework from a nationalist lens to one that considers politics at the state level, to be of primary importance on the abortion issue. No longer is the question about who the president would nominate as a Supreme Court justice and what their true intentions were about upholding precedent or returning the issue to the states where it bears the most constitutional grounding. So, I mean, when you are nominated as a Supreme Court justice, it's an interesting game you have to play. You know, the president that nominated you can say flat out, look, I'm looking to nominate pro-life originalist justices. Haven't you heard that one before? Yes. And by the time that nomination comes, it seemed every time the nominee would have to say, look, I respect precedent. I respect precedent this. I respect precedent that. And then... Something in that answer 
in that elaboration would also have to hint of uh, some level of restraint, some assurance to Congress that somehow you don't really attempt to overturn the order of the day. But of course, this is a really strange dynamic because the energy behind, I hate to even call it an interest on such a serious issue, but um, it seems we can't really escape that term anyway. The energy behind that interest hopes to get something out of the vote, uh, hopes to get something out of devoting their life to one side or the other, uh, whichever side they take, pro or con. They want to see results, they want to see changes in their favorite direction. So that's the voice of the constituency, and it seems that although we were told again and again overturning Roe or some other landmark decision, that's never actually going to happen. Well, it seems that the energy of the constituencies do in fact have the power to push over institutions that we commonly seem to regard as stabilizing forces, um, institutions you don't really expect to move the ball into themselves. We think, well, that's that's what Congress is for. That's even what a uh, president is for to some extent. The executive branch, the laws that they choose to enforce and prioritize over others, even though constitutionally, at least as I would read it, there's really not too much discernment allowed, not too much nuance there when it does say faithfully execute the laws of the land. That sounds awful binding and, you know, you don't like the laws, either don't serve or try to um, get Congress to change them. That seems to be the proper seat of the president. But when you push activism like this uh, onto the federal level, you end up debasing the nature of these systems and they become a lot more activist oriented. Okay, so moving along beyond that issue, beyond the United States, several developments have shaken and stirred around the world. Great Britain's Prime Minister Boris Johnson stepped down following a series of scandals and a loss of public confidence. Longtime Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe was assassinated, leaving the course of Indo-Pacific affairs less certain. Protesters in Sri Lanka booted their president out of the country, who resigned by email and fled to Singapore. The Dutch parliament enacted radical nitrogen emission reductions against its farmers, resulting in a massive backlash and protest. The term agflation was coined. Other EU member states are similarly bound to feel the heat. Each of these events demonstrate the instability and chaos of national politics. And just to rehash a little bit, a lot of this began to play out towards the end of the summer of last year. Just to bookmark the thought, if you really wanted to look deeper into that, uh, this episode really just uh, intends to rehash that point more generally, and we're going to go ahead and move on a little bit. So here are some points worth retaining as we delve into the next section of Nations by Consent. 
When the Soviet Union crumbled, the world witnessed a vivid and startlingly swift decomposition of the centralized state or alleged nation-state into its constituent nationalities. The nation is not the same thing as the state. Even within North America, several distinct nations can be identified, and these internal distinctions can greatly enhance our perspective and analysis. So on that final point, which I didn't really stress uh, in the audio, you can certainly look at the, um, the part one, the entry, and I reference Colin Woodard, and he has done a fantastic job, I think, of breaking down the different regions that seem to represent distinctly enough what you can say are organic, genuine nations within the union that we live under. With this foundation established, we're going to proceed to the next section in the essay, Nations by Consent, with a 21st century view. So part two is the crucial flaw of Wilsonian foreign policy. Huh, never seems to be irrelevant these days. So Rothbard begins this section with the observation that a Wilsonian view of nationhood and collective security sets the stage for large-scale conflict. So to quote Rothbard, the problem of the nation has been aggravated in the 20th century by the overriding influence of Wilsonianism on U.S. and worldwide foreign policy. I refer not to the idea of national self-determination, observed mainly in the breach after World War I, but to the concept of collective security against aggression. The fatal flaw in this seductive concept is that it treats nation-states by an analogy with individual aggressors, with the world community, in the guise of a cop on the corner. And just to kind of throw a note in here, um, an antidote, going into the 21st century, uh, this whole fallacy of collective security hasn't really ceased to exist. But as you might take note of, it has grossly expanded. So since the fall of the Soviet Union, NATO has only seeked to expand. Perhaps its merits had substance when the USSR was at its peak in power and its goal of expanding communism was obtainable. Yet, since the end of the Cold War, the member states of NATO have nearly doubled. Following a short-lived peace with the post-Soviet Russia, NATO has added the following nations to its allied arsenal. Albania in 2009, Bulgaria in 2004, Croatia in 2009, the Czech Republic in 1999, Estonia in 2004, Finland in 2023, Hungary in 1999, Latvia in 2004, Lithuania in 2004 as well, Montenegro in 2017, North Macedonia in 2020, Poland in 1999, Romania in 2004, Slovakia in 2004, 
and also Slovenia again in 2004. It's an old playbook with new troubles. More than likely, NATO expansionism was a major factor in provoking the Russian invasion of Ukraine. While there may not have been serious plans to invite Ukraine into NATO, actions taken in 2014 amounted to regime change against a neighboring state that had grown friendlier to Russia in the lead-up to the so-called Maidan Revolution. Democratically elected President Viktor Yanukovych was ousted and replaced by the preferred Ukrainian leadership handpicked by U.S. Assistant Secretary of State Victoria Newland and U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine Jeffrey Pyatt. In other troubling news, some are taking the notions of a scorched earth warfare tactic to new heights. Briefly defined, this is when military operations are focused on destroying infrastructure that an enemy may rely on. The destruction of the Nord Stream pipelines, for example. According to the great military philosopher Sun Tzu, it's an absolutely senseless endeavor to destroy infrastructure of so much value. Indeed, what are you fighting for if the spoils are destroyed in the process? A sitting member of Congress has proposed blowing up Taiwan's TSMC semiconductor fabrication plant in response to an invasion by China. That would be Representative Seth Moulton, Democrat from Massachusetts. Author and reporter Brandon Weikert explains, His logic makes sense in a certain strange Lovian way. If Beijing thinks the Americans will destroy this factory that is essential for creating nearly 90% of the world's computer chips to prevent China from gaining control of it, China might be deterred from trying to take the island. After all, China, like the rest of the world, requires access to those computer chips for their economy, military, and overall society to function. But that holds true for every advanced nation in the West, including the United States. How much mutually assured destruction can we really afford? The Absurdity of Territorial Integrity Rothbard explains a fairly obvious theoretical distinction between individuals and nations, and the folly of ignoring its absurdity, Rothbard states, it is absurd to designate every nation-state with its self-proclaimed boundary as it exists at any one time as somehow right and sacrosanct, each with its territorial integrity to maintain as spotless and unbreached as your or my bodily person or private property. Invariably, of course, these boundaries have been acquired by force and violence, or by interstate agreement above and beyond the heads of the inhabitants on the spot. And invariably, these boundaries shift a great deal over time, in ways that make proclamations of territorial integrity truly ludicrous. So Rothbard points to the situation in Yugoslavia near the end of his life to exemplify the Orwellian shift of establishment voices across the West proclaiming the 
territorial integrity of that nation and denouncing any secessionist movements. The same establishment went from embracing the Serbs to denouncing them for alleged aggression against the territorial integrity of Bosnia. Much of the mess in the Balkans was caused by then-Yugoslavian president Slobodan Milosevic, whose nationalistic crusades served as an affront to several autonomous states within the region. This resulted in four major wars, all of which Milosevic lost and fractured the peace within the regions. Balkanization is a strange pejorative when it was a nationalistic military effort to enforce a false unity that inevitably led to a harsh fracturing between the peoples inhabiting the region. The moral of this historic episode is not one favorable to a forced unity or a regional conquest, but a forewarning against meddling with the nationhood freely established of each party. Rothbard viewed the United States as particularly unfit for the job of playing the world's policemen. Americans, he said, have adopted nationalism in a world cop framework only as a relatively recent phenomenon and have no historical memory of conflicts that face other nations. This, Rothbard observed, was a deadly mix. And just to kind of add a little bit of where I think Rothbard is going with that, the United States is not only a young empire, but a young nation, period. Sometimes you hear it said that the Chinese think in terms of hundreds of years, which seems awfully admirable when you think about how most Americans might think in terms of weeks, months, single years, if they're even that sophisticated. But it seems that we, as a young nation, as a young empire, have an awfully hard time with a big picture of history, learning the mistakes of the recent past. I mean, if you look at the, let's just use this as an example, the propaganda that was used to get the U.S. involved in spearheading the war in Iraq, there's so many echoes with this Ukraine situation, basically every other major conflict that the United States wishes to be involved in. We're now on part three, Rethinking Secession. And in this section, we encounter Rothbard's case for secession to justly reflect the will of a territory's inhabitants. And before I go on, I do take the time to make the connection to the American tradition that might surprise uh, a listener who is unfamiliar with the argument or who is led to assume, based on what they've been taught from the Pledge of Allegiance and just the general nationalist overtone of modern education, that the United States is one unitary nation state as opposed to a federation, a collection of societies that is brought together and unified based on a common defense and what is now a 50-state trade zone, free trade buffer zone. So, genuine nations. Secession has made substantial headway into political discourse as a result of the discontent that has sprouted various populist movements 
in a seemingly overheated political environment where differences are not always cordial and notions of pluralism have been given the scoff. From fairly successful campaigns such as Catalonia and Brexit, to long-shot proposals like Texit, Calexit, and the state of Jefferson, the issue of secession has gained momentum and serves as a shift in the Overton window to the annoyance of an establishment that once casually dismissed national divorce as a fringe issue that made for fodder when the time came to attack a bogeyman. But if this has actually taken the talking heads for a spin, what has motivated the desire for such a thing? Murray Rothbard expressed the desired objective to transform existing nation-states into national entities whose boundaries could be called just, in the same way he saw private property boundaries. This would ultimately decompose existing coercive nation-states into genuine nations or nations by consent. So to Rothbard, secession was not only defensible, but desirable. So Rothbard says, In short, every group, every nationality, should be allowed to secede from any nation-state and to join any other nation-state that agrees to have it. That simple reform would go a long way towards establishing nations by consent. The Scots, if they wanted to, should be allowed by the English to leave the United Kingdom and to become independent, and even to join a Gaelic confederation if the constituents so desire. But one may ask, what about the trade barriers this might create? Well, as Rothbard saw it, more independent and smaller nations meant each barrier had less power. Likewise, fiat monetary systems would have less illusory power over the public. Back to Rothbard, he says, for it would be far more difficult to sow the illusion of self-sufficiency if the slogan were, by North Dakotan, or even by 56th Street, than it is now to convince the public to buy American. Similarly, down with North Dakota, or a fortiori, down with 55th Street, would be a more difficult sell than spreading fear or hatred of the Japanese. Similarly, the absurdities and the unfortunate consequences of fiat paper money would be far more evident if each province or each neighborhood or each street block were to print its own currency. A more decentralized world would be far more likely to turn to sound market commodities such as gold or silver for its money. In the United States, it is all too typical of secessionist proposals to be shouted down with the worst possible suspicions. A Twitter war may even have secession equated with the return of the worst features of the Old South. Needless to say, this is nonsense, only worthy of ridicule. The ability of a territory to withdraw from an overbearing central government is precisely what made the American experiment possible. The Declaration of Independence was largely inspired by Virginia's Declaration of Rights, in which George Mason declares that government is or ought to be instituted for the common benefit, protection, and security of the people, nation, or community of all the various modes and forms of government. 
that is best, which is capable of producing the greatest degree of happiness and safety, and is most effectually secured against the danger of maladministration, and that when any government shall be found inadequate or contrary to these purposes, a majority of the community has an indubitable, inalienable, and indefeasible right to reform, alter, or abolish it in such a manner as shall be judged most conductive to the public will. Thomas Jefferson echoes this sentiment in the Declaration of Independence when he says, Governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Not only are these passages relevant to the breakaway from Great Britain, the United States was declared internally to consist of free and independent states. King George would recognize each state within the Union as an eagle to Great Britain in terms of sovereignty. The Articles of Confederation declares in Section 2, Each state retains its sovereignty, freedom, and independence, and every power, jurisdiction, and right which is not by this confederation expressly delegated to the United States in Congress assembled. In the U.S. Constitution, this principle was embodied in the Tenth Amendment. It would be a mistake to confine the advocacy of secession to the American South. In 1803, seeing the Louisiana Purchase as a threat to their power and interests, the New England Federalists began threatening to secede from the Union. The New England Federalist Party also considered secession in 1814 at the Hartford Convention in response to James Madison's mercantilism and the War of 1812. Now that we have established both the theoretical and historical basis for secession, it's imperative to explore its practicality with varying degrees of sincerity. The issue of debt is brought up by skeptics of secession. While a disillusion is often bound to be a process full of uncertainty and contention, Ryan McMakin of the Mises Institute points to the Czech-Slovak split as a successful model to consider. He says, perhaps the ideal nation split is the dissolution of Czechoslovakia in 1992, which was a case of a highly integrated federal state peacefully negotiating a separation into two new sovereign states. Although negotiations were often tense, both sides did agree, eventually, to a plan of dividing assets and debts, generally based on relative population and location. That is, debts were allocated based largely on a two-to-one ratio, with Czechs being the more populous group. Moreover, many aspects of the negotiations were problematic. Both Czech and Slovak activists contended they were being exploited by the other side. The Slovaks, who were outnumbered by the wealthier Czechs, often felt that the Czechs received an unfair advantage because the outgoing Federation's assets tended to be concentrated in Czech areas. Ultimately, however, negotiations concluded peacefully.
Alright, so let's go ahead and move on to part four of the Nations by Consent essay. So part four is called the Anarcho-Capitalist Model. So Murray Rothbard presents the pure anarcho-capitalist model as a theoretical guidepost for desired outcomes, even when working within a status framework. Simply put, in his words, that no land, areas, no square footage in the world shall remain public. Every square foot of land area, be they streets, squares, or neighborhoods, is privatized. And so, I observe that even here, Rothbard seems to face credible dissent from fellow market anarchist Roderick T. Long, who splits the difference between public property controlled by the organized public, thus an organized state as represented by government officials, and, in contrast, the unorganized public, thus property that the public at large was deemed to have a right of access to, but without any presumption that government would be involved in the matter at all. Take, for example, the proprietary communities open to the general public for commerce, as expounded upon by Spencer McCallum. But Long furthers his case, stressing that, in his words, Lockeans typically hold that individuals have property right to any goods that they receive by voluntary transfer of their legitimate owners. And he has a view of how property claims may be legitimate even as they are collective endeavors. So I'm going to read directly from him. He says, Consider a village near a lake. It is common for the villagers to walk down to the lake to go fishing. In the early days of the community, it's hard to get to the lake because of all the bushes and fallen branches in the way. But over time, the way is cleared and a path forms, not through any centralized coordinated effort, but simply as a result of all the individuals walking that way day after day. The cleared path is the product of labor, not any individual's labor, but all of them together. If one villager decided to take advantage of the now-created path by setting up a gate and charging tolls, he would be violating the collective property right that the villagers together have earned. And I do have to confess this um, example does hit the heart of uh, the imagination of the private propertarian, the individualist propertarian, in a way that demands a well-thought response. And so, these examples may seek to enhance rather than detract Rothbard's proposal when properly weighed. The semantics involved should by now be properly sorted out by the distinctions long as provided, and both would presumably find this theoretical amendment worth contemplating. It may be disputed, however, that the collective property right of the villagers is subject to denial or recognition by the private individual owners of the properties the path was created on. And just to pin a point down here, um, as I'm in the middle of my own sentence, I, uh, I do want to confirm this is imagining we do have the world that Rothbard described where every inch, every mile is essentially privatized. Okay, so I continue. After all their labor was presumably tied to the resources of another property owner. 
whether that work was done in vain, ultimately rests on the property owner's decisions. Every portion of that path is ultimately a secondary claim, similar to a sandcastle at a privately owned beach. Long offers several other proposals that follow Lockean recognition, but likewise they must reckon with claims of individual property ownership. The presumed goal of a political philosophy is to avoid and resolve foreseeable conflicts. A property rights system aims to establish coherent boundaries and avoid a situation with competing rights claims. Boy, do we have that today in the political world. But I digress. If this situation should arise, its theories and axioms should shed light on which claim holds the most weight. For example, Stefan Kinsella has written and spoken extensively against intellectual property rights and their conflicts with tangible, material property claim. Like intellectual property, Long's unorganized public property, for as helpful as the distinction aims to be, finds itself divorced from the Lockean model instead of serving to expand it. In addition to Long's argument, Rothbard's anarcho-capitalist model contributed to the inspiration of Robert Murphy's market anarchist blueprint, Chaos Theory as well as Hans-Hermann Hoppe's vision of covenantal communities and democracy, the god that failed. So, as the Cold War came to a close, it was revealed that ethnic Russians were encouraged to emigrate to Estonia and Latvia by Joseph Stalin with the intent of destroying their languages and culture. Now, for Rothbard, it was the Camp of the Saints problem coming to life. In reference to Jean Raspiel's novel under that title, in which the author envisions the entire population of India moving into France. Now, if life imitated art in ways that were no longer deemed absurd, it was time for Rothbard to reconsider his views on immigration. As he put it, as cultural and welfare state problems have intensified, it became impossible to dismiss. Raspiel's concerns any longer. So previously we examined the relationship between culture and property in my piece called The Uninvited Caretaker, which was largely an outgrowth of Rothbard's own conclusions on immigration, as stated in this essay. So in that piece, here's what I wrote. Culture is not property, strictly speaking, however it can be expressed and codified in contract. The private sphere of society consists of a large body of contracts for every resident among the population. This would satisfy the assumption that culture is intertwined with the legal system. Language is also not strictly a matter of private property, but bears significant status in the interpretation of law. This extends to practically every legal school of thought as judges may explore the meaning of language employed from the time a law was written to its modern usage. Both culture and language consist of norms and customs of social recognition. They are the end products of peaceful association, voluntary cooperation, and spontaneous order, as demonstrated here both extend significantly into the legal system, and it would be foolish to assume otherwise. Okay, so with or without directly codifying culture and language into legal theory, these subjects 
would still have some place in society, even in the thin libertarian proposal of a social order strictly defined by private property. One little giveaway, that last bit there, was uh, it was in response to Walter Block's counter-argument that would state, look, language and culture, they aren't really rights, so why should we really be defending them? Why was Rothbard outraged at Stalin? Why did this affect his view on immigration? Well, uh, in my mind, the intertwining of all these things does demonstrate a strong connection. Okay, so moving on a little bit, Rothbard was all inspired to witness the decomposition of Yugoslavia into its constituent nationalities, but recognized Bosnia's potential for conflict. His solution was further decentralization. He said, this of course will result in a large number of enclaves, parts of nations surrounded by other nations. How can this be solved? In the first place, the enclave-exclave problem exists right now, and he points to Nagorno-Karabakh as a landlocked region in Armenia that continues to face ongoing blockades even today due to its residing territory. Fateful as this situation was and still is, Rothbard confidently insisted privatization would lead to much-needed access rights coming to fruition. So he says, under total privatization, of course, these problems would disappear. Nowadays, no one in the U.S. buys land without making sure that his title to the land is clear. In the same way, in a fully privatized world, access rights would obviously be a crucial part of land ownership. In such a world, then, Graba property owners would make sure that they had purchased access rights through an Aziri land corridor. And just to uh, close off this point, uh, Ryan McMakin of the Mises Institute wrote an article that was critical of um, public accommodation laws, but in it he highlights the historical tendency of marginalized ethnic groups to use enclaves and build tight-knit communities in order to launch their prosperity out of it. So rather than blindly credit the government for those advancements, McMakin stresses the pivotal role of the parallel economy. McMakin says, Does anyone seriously believe that Japanese Americans obtained higher levels of income and social economic status than whites because Congress mandated that private business seat them at lunch counters? A far more believable explanation is that the roots of success of Japanese American entrepreneurs existed long before the 1960s. This was all done, by the way, in spite of having widespread government restrictions on all these activities. Private discrimination was hardly the largest problem facing Japanese Americans in the 20th century. Similarly, with Latino groups, poverty alleviation was accelerated, not by mandates that shopkeepers serve coffee to Mexican Americans. Far more likely is the fact that impelled by refusals to provide services by some Anglos, Mexican-American entrepreneurs built their own social and economic institutions, which, like Goya Foods, grew beyond the bounds of their own ethnic groups over time. And the final uh, bit in this whole uh, uh, part four here is citizenship and voting rights. So Rothbard viewed the 
modern Anglo-American model of automatic citizenship as a grave flaw in a society where such a citizenship status confers a right to vote. Such a system, he says, clearly invites welfare immigration by expectant parents, whose babies, if born on American soil, automatically become citizens and therefore entitle themselves and their parents to permanent welfare payments and free medical care. The French system, in contrast, requires one to be born to a citizen to obtain automatic citizenship and therefore is far closer to the idea of a nation by consent. So in a fully privatized society, as Rothbard envisioned, voting would mostly be reserved to matters of corporations, joint stock companies, and various private clubs. And if dissatisfied with the direction of such a club, the freedom to leave and join another was a great virtue to be embraced. More privatization and decentralization ultimately negated the supposed importance of voting in such a society. This vision understandably leaves the Rothbardian underwhelmed by the touting of democracy and voting rights in the present system. And I'm going to go ahead and close off with Rothbard in his own words. He says, In the modern world, democracy or voting is only important either to join in or ratify the use of the government to control others or to use it as a way of preventing oneself or one's group from being controlled. Voting, however, is at best an inefficient instrument for self-defense, and it is far better to replace it by breaking up central government power altogether. So that's going to draw nations by consent to a close, and I hope this was as thought-provoking for you as it was for myself. Alright, well I think that's all the jipping you need today. I'd like to thank you for listening, and I wish you well until the next time we get jipped.